With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hannah Alam didn't expect to be covering COVID-19. She reports on national security and extremism for NPR. But the funny thing about this moment, she says, is how the coronavirus... It ends up touching everything. Like everyone, I mean, it doesn't matter what your beat was before the pandemic. Everyone's a coronavirus reporter now. A few weeks back, Hannah started hearing about this story. It was right at the intersection between a regular beat and the pandemic. It revolved around a shootout in Missouri. Much like the rest of the metro and the country, this dead-end street in Belton, where a few businesses are located, is pretty quiet. But it was far from quiet Tuesday. That afternoon, witnesses told us law enforcement officers opened fire on 36-year-old Timothy Wilson and killed him. The FBI. We heard that there was this weird operation down in Missouri, COVID connection, the guy ends up dead. In encrypted messages, investigators say Wilson would use racial slurs when referring to people of different races or religions and that he held anti-government beliefs. He did not. The man who got killed, Timothy Wilson, he was 36 years old. He had ties to neo-Nazi groups online. The FBI had been keeping tabs on him since September. But, you know, it wasn't until later that we started getting details about what was going on with the investigation. And um, frankly, I don't think we, we still don't know the sort of circumstances of Wilson's death. What Hannah does know is from court documents. In them, a confidential informant and undercover FBI agent allege Wilson had been plotting to bomb a mosque or a synagogue or even an elementary school serving black children. I mean, the court papers are quite riveting. I mean, they watched this guy for a really, really long time. They describe how Wilson was in touch with this undercover operative, discussed bomb making with him. And Wilson writes to the undercover agent that he still thinks is a fellow extremist, well, if you're a Fed, you've got me now. And if that's the case, make sure you bring lots of body bags when you ra raid my house, LOL. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, court papers also quote him as saying he wanted to create enough chaos to, quote, kickstart a revolution. But then the coronavirus pandemic hits and the FBI says Wilson's target changes again and that he shifted focus to Kansas City area hospitals that were treating COVID-19 patients. Timothy Wilson's plan was to bomb the hospital. Why did the coronavirus change how this white supremacist thought of what he was going to do? This is something that we've seen in a lot of other cases, that extremism today and how it's expressed is often not as clear-cut as this is a white supremacist, this is an anti-government person. What we're seeing is a hybrid, a mix of a lot of these different views. FBI agents show up to arrest him, and um, this is where it gets murky. Something didn't go according to plan, gunfire is exchanged, Wilson ends up dead. And... It's a pretty extraordinary and dramatic and violent end to a domestic terrorism uh, investigation. 
And it barely made a blip because the focus has all been on the pandemic. Today on the show, a story about the widening reach of the coronavirus. With so many Americans alone and under so much stress, far-right groups are taking advantage. It's not just the virus that's spreading. Extreme and sometimes violent rhetoric is, too. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So when I looked at your reporting and others, it, it wasn't until I, I really read the whole stories pretty deeply that I realized that the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, all of these law enforcement agencies have basically been out there warning about this link between the coronavirus and potential domestic terrorism, and that that's been happening for a while because there have been all these little incidents that alarm them, especially, you know, about a month ago or a month or and a month and a half ago, um, people spraying, you know, something they say is coronavirus in a business and telling people they've been exposed. But then also people threatening to do things like bomb the Orlando police station. And I was surprised to read that. Well, and, and well, and also um, alleged hate crimes targeting Asian Americans and others. I mean, a, a family of three stabbed in a Sam's Club down in Texas, I believe it was. And there had been, I think ABC News got a hold of this um, memo from an FBI field office, but it went out to a lot of law enforcement. And it warned that, you know, but just sort of be aware that extremists could try to take advantage and try to exploit the pandemic in different ways. And so, yes, kind of saying, pay attention to this threat. Yeah, you talked to a number of experts who basically said it's not just that these more extreme members of violent sort of white supremacist groups might be spurred to action because of what's happening with the coronavirus. It's the fact that with all of us being home and online all day, it creates a perfect sort of situation for recruitment. Can you explain that a little bit? That's right. I mean, we have millions of kids out of school away from their usual support system of parents and coaches and pastors um, glued to their devices for hours on end because they're stuck indoors. Um, in many cases, they've seen their lives upended. They don't know when they're going back to school. They don't get to graduate. You know, they're loved ones are sick. Their parents are laid off. They're surrounded by despair and fear and uncertainty. And many extremism researchers worry that, yes, that's basically all the ingredients you need to make extremist views resonate. So I spoke with a woman named Shannon Foley-Martinez, who is a former white supremacist who was radicalized when she was very young. She was a skinhead by age 16. She got out of that movement and for 25 years has worked with parents and schools and institutions on prevention work. And this is her, her biggest fear right now. Are we seeing any evidence that 
folks are being recruited into these more extreme groups now? So there's really no metric. This is something also that extremism researchers are are always asking reporters to emphasize, that it's not a traditional militant recruiting effort. It's not like, you know, ISIS and other groups that have specific recruiters. That's their function. I mean, some hate groups have that, but generally this is a self-propagating movement. And the researchers I talk to say, if you're in it, you're recruiting all the time because you're sharing memes and tweets and comments that reinforce and spread the ideology. So it's not a recruiting call where they come and tell your child, you know, join our noble cause and defend your race. The message is delivered online. It's reinforced in meme after meme after meme. And it's often couched in humor that blunts the seriousness and often the dehumanization that you see in those messages. Well, you know what I think about? I think about those protests we've been seeing at state capitals where it's a mix of people. It's people with legitimate grievances of wanting to go back to work but then also a lot of organizing power from folks who might be involved with more fringe organizations. I wonder what you make of that. No, that's right. You've seen, like you said, there are people who just come come out and say, this is my conviction. I want to work. I, you know, I want to be in charge of my medical decisions. And it's, you know, the constitutional friction between personal liberties and public health. But enter into that fray, um, so-called constitutionalist factions, they sometimes call themselves patriot groups, liberty groups, there's a lot of overlap with anti-government, anti-vaxxer, militias, gun clubs, conspiracy theorists. And, and as we've seen from photos of the protests, you also get the kind of standard issue racists and anti-Semites, if you've seen the signs and some of the you know, symbols that, they've, uh, that you can see in the photos from this. What was one that stood out to you? Well, I mean... A Confederate flag, you know, what's that have to do with the coronavirus and your ability to go back to work after a pandemic? And, you know, there's been a lot of attention to anti-Semitic phrases that have cropped up on, you know, some of the picket signs of the protesters. And, you know, yes, those kinds of things make you ask, what is this really about? Yeah, I look at your reporting and I see these like concentric circles of people sort of becoming more inflamed and more engaged. Like in the center, you have folks who were committed, you know, white supremacists before this, and maybe were making plans before this, but this becomes, the coronavirus becomes something to rally around. And then maybe a little bit out from that, you have people who were maybe be involved with militias and and are now online more and able to participate more with groups that they may have participated with just a little bit. And then on the outer edges, you just have folks who are stuck at home without a job and want someone to blame because who doesn't really in these kinds of situations? And you can see how each of these concentric circles is going to get bigger and sort of more inflamed as this goes on. Yeah, I mean, the pandemic has something for every brand of extremist. I mean, the racists see a chance to blame Asians, Jews, Muslims, and so on. The accelerationists say, oh, look at the chaotic fallout. We told you this is going to happen. Do you want to be part of this crumbling old order? Or do you want to be part of this new project, like a white ethno state or a chance to remake the country? The militias, anti-government factions, 
they you know, point to the stay-at-home orders and say, look at all these constitutional violations. We warned you about government overreach. So it's really whatever your sort of lane is in this you know, extremism, you can find a way to connect it to the virus and the government's response to it. As the pandemic wears on, Hannah says she's watching these causes converge. And for some anti-government activists, the line separating them from a hate group is becoming less defined. And it's really been interesting, you know, to see how the groups themselves are grappling with this, um, how, you know, more militant groups or these constitutionalist groups, because there's a camp that says, let's all band together. And who cares if this guy is out there spouting white supremacist stuff, he's showing up for this meeting, that's what's important. And others say, no, we don't have to partner with everyone and we shouldn't. And that's how these arguments are playing out every day. I got a call this week from a frustrated militia leader who said, you know, I don't need to partner with everyone. Why you know, and was kind of bemoaning the fact that the movement wasn't doing a good enough job policing itself from, you know, the white supremacists and, um, and others who want to kind of glom on to that, you know, banner of the Constitution and liberty and those ideals because they're you know, more palatable. That's so interesting. I hadn't even thought about that side of it, where it's just people who are just really concerned with individual liberties. And now this becomes like a new fight that they have to take on with their own members. Yeah. And I mean, and I mean, you know, people would say even without the white supremacist part, but that 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 militia stance on its own is extremist and belongs in that sort of anti-government bucket. Because when the rubber hits the road, you know, it's if these groups feel that there has been a constitutional violation, they have said, you know, they are ready to use force to defend liberties and defend the constitution. And that's how they couch this. So, I mean, it's not like there's not something to look at and to, you know, look closely at even and even without the white supremacist element in some of these protests. I wanted to talk to you about this funny call and response between these extreme groups and the president. There was this reporting a few weeks back that when Trump began tweeting about liberating states like Michigan and Virginia, it actually changed how folks on the internet were behaving. I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit. I can't get into, you know, too much of the politics and the president's role and and all of that. Um, You know, but I can tell you that, you know, yesterday or day before I was online and I was looking at the account of a former white supremacist. He was actually a former moderator on one of the biggest white supremacist forums. And he's left the movement and he's become really outspoken about it. And he's, he's worried about this moment. And he wrote that, that he would have found resonance with what the president was saying back when he was in those movements. And he would have interpreted it as tacit support. And that tacit support it's got real consequences. There's evidence that what a president says matters when it comes to hate speech. When you look at, um, for example, then-President Bush after 9-11 and when there were some retaliatory attacks against Muslims, Bush comes out fairly early on and says, and you know, he just basically makes a distinction between 
Islam as it's practiced by 1.6 billion people and, you know, this extremist fringe. And there was a precipitous drop in hate crimes after that speech. Then we've seen, for example, I mean, I remember covering a case right after President Trump signed, or I can't remember if it was when he announced or signed the travel ban. That day, I think hours later, uh, a guy went and torched a mosque in Texas, burned it to the ground. Hmm. Um, Was it a fluke? Was it a one-off? I mean, these are things that, you know, social scientists and and others who are really, you know, academics who are tracking this stuff have to have to talk about. But there are all these other factors about, you know, that can you know, sort of influence hate crimes. But yes, presidential speech is one of them. Hmm. You reported out this other story in the last few days that I want to talk about because it's much more subtle. It's not about violence, but it's about how embedded these extremist groups can be in just like everyday society. It was a story that that had been presented on the cable news as kind of heartwarming, a farmer who had these extra potatoes that he was distributing. Can you explain what happened? Ah, yes, potato gate. So this farmer has a surplus of potatoes because he can't sell them. Um, You know, the supply process is disrupted. So they were going to be left to sort of rot. And um, a group of, of um, you know, community volunteers in, in rural Idaho gets together and they say, you know, we can take these to these three little towns where, you know, people need help like this. And so one of the volunteers was a guy with a dump truck. And so they load up all these potatoes, they drive them to these towns, they dump them. There's this mountain of potatoes. Everybody's really happy. People are showing up with burlap sacks, carting them off. And it's this really feel-good moment in the pandemic. You know, maybe not for the farmer who lost his crop, but at least it didn't go to waste. And so that's how it was presented. It made the Rachel Maddow show. Cranny Farms ended up giving away 800,000 pounds of potatoes to regular people, to food banks, to charities. There is a lot but, you know, one of my colleagues, Kirk Siegler, who actually lives in Idaho and, and covers militia movements too, he, he sent me a text and said, look at the t-shirt, you know? And it was a, it was a t-shirt um, indicating membership in the 3%, the real Idaho 3%ers. And that is a militia there, um, the, one of the largest militias in the Western United States. And um, this is the guy distributing the potatoes. Yeah, he was. He had the dump truck and he was, you know, rocking his three uh, percenter T-shirt. And so he, you know, and this was in the photos visible that were that were going out. So it's basically it was a feel good moment. The potatoes did get to people who wanted them. It was an, you know, an instance of community service and a community coming together to solve a pandemic problem. Does it make a difference that the guy helping was a zone leader for a group whose leader has been on trial twice in federal court as a, you know, in a, in a domestic terrorism case? What did you think? Like, does it? You know, afterwards, I, I, I got an email, I think, from a, one of the organizers who said, why do you have to point, like, basically, why do you have to point that out? Who cares? That wasn't, there was no politics involved with it. He just showed up and he helped. And, you know, what, what does that have to do? What does the militia have to do with it? 
But to others watching this, if you have someone who's, who's wearing a t-shirt affiliated with a movement that's considered an anti-government militant movement, that's how it's categorized by federal law enforcement, by extremists and researchers, you know, it raises questions. Like, what's the, what's the role in that? And then in, for extremism researchers, they, they will tell you that this is part of a long tradition of militant groups all over the world, you know, kind of making inroads with communities through community service. And so, you know, they're saying, yes, they're involved in volunteerism, um, but look at it with a jaundiced eye, basically. That basically, you know, yes, today they're delivering potatoes. Tomorrow they could be in a standoff with federal authorities. It's interesting because I saw that and I also saw the protests in the various state houses. And I thought, wow, this is interesting because it shows how embedded these groups are in just day-to-day American life, first of all. Um, but also, at this moment, when the federal government, I think most would say, is not doing a great job of providing a shared purpose for a lot of people who are out of work and are scared, these groups are there for them. They're happy to provide a shared purpose and a common goal. And a lot of Americans might not like what that common goal is. This was kind of my my pet peeve in some of the coverage of Islamist extremism at the height of like ISIS and you know um, and post nine eleven stuff that, you know, there was a period where the reporting would suggest that, you know, Muslim teens are leaving en masse to go to Syria and that it's this like massive epidemic of recruiting. I mean, it was a huge recruiting, it was an unprecedented uh, recruiting effort at that time for that extremist movement. And it, it was a big deal. But it was also overblown. And in a way that I also want to make sure that our coverage of this particular threat is also responsible and that we are looking at it in the most sober and clear-eyed way based on facts, based on what we see. I mean, to do that, you really need that on-the-ground reporting that we don't have right now. That's been so frustrating. Um, As soon as these, uh, as soon as it becomes safe to do so, I'd love to go out and see what does, what do these groups really do on the ground? during the crisis. Are they going to come out of this stronger or weaker? Those are some of the questions I'm going to be looking at. Hannah Alam covers extremism for NPR. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Jason DeLeon, and Mary Wilson. For this show and a lot of our shows these days, we had some help from Allison Benedict and from Alicia Montgomery. I'm Mary Harris. Stay healthy out there. I'll see you back in this feed tomorrow. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.